everyone. Welcome to the Cultivate Podcast with the Grove Church. I'm Charlie Lofton, the lead pastor there, and thank you so much for joining us. And we are now in week two of a series on really just kind of a deep dive into the gospel. The gospel is not just something that you believe and you receive to in order to become a Christian. It really is the foundation of every aspect of the Christian life. And it's not something that we graduate from. It's not something that we move away from. It really is kind of the cornerstone to kind of understanding every aspect of the Christian life. How do I become a better person? How do I grow in my character? How do I learn how to be a better husband? How do I learn to be a better dad? How do I learn to be better at what at, at my work? How do I overcome fear? How do I overcome anxiety? Whatever all the questions we ask in our day-to-day life about our present, our past, our future, the centerpiece of it is really understanding what the nature of our relationship with God is, what is it based on, who, G- who is Jesus, what did he do for me? That is this, uh, everything is built upon that. No advice that the church gives, no, no encouragement to be better, to do better, to do things, to act a certain way, to live a certain way. None of those things are possible apart from really just kind of a full understanding by which my relationship with God, how, how does it even start? What is it based on? We can't build on something without understanding what it's based on. And if we try to build without it, or we start to slowly drift and forget, there's just a lot of different things that can happen. And one of the most, one of the most, uh, discouraging things that I see often in in my life and other people's lives is the way that we drift is to start to believe that my relationship with God really is dependent on what I do. And if we start to believe that, even if we understood at first that the gospel, what Jesus did for us is free, even if we believe that once, but we slowly start to drift towards this idea of that my relationship with God is based on what I do. We move away from the gospel. Our faith starts to waver. We start to get discouraged and really good-hearted, good-intended people slowly but surely drift away from God. Because in the same way you can't earn God's favor, you can't earn God's forgiveness, you can't, you can't keep, once you've gotten those things through Jesus, you can't keep them by what you do either. And so I need to really understand what the gospel is and what it really means for me. And so last time we talked about just kind of the nature and the power of God's love. And if you did not listen to that, I encourage you to just kind of pause right here and go back and check that one out where I think we think that we understand what it means, but I don't, I don't think that we really believe that God loves me the way that a really loving, compassionate, emotional dad would love me and that his love is even beyond that. I think we think of fondness, the way a, a principal may love his students or a nice employer might love his employees. It's a still, it's a very transactional relationship. It's not intimate. It's not emotional. It's not deep. It's not powerful. So maybe we can acknowledge that God loves me, but I don't, I don't really believe it. And so what we talked about a little bit last time was kind of this idea, this kind of these three points of the gospel and then different people have different off ramps. And so some people may think that God is too big or too disinterested to care or love individual people, or maybe you feel abandoned, or maybe you feel hurt, or maybe you feel like life has been too rough. If God really loved me, it wouldn't be like this. And we've already taken the off, the off ramp. And so I just encourage you just to, to, to really reflect and believe and try to trust and understand that despite these circumstances that may, you may think are pulling you in the one, one way or another, God does love you. But, you know, for most of us, it's like, okay, I, th- I think I understand that and I'm ready to kind of keep going. I understand that God loves me, but I think that we also understand 
that there is a problem. It's not God loves me, and so everything's great. I look around, and it's not great. I walk outside, it's not great. I read the news, it's not great. I know what's going on in my own heart and my own life, and it's not great. Something, something is wrong. What, what is that wrong? And I think this is the question that everyone is asking, um, even if they don't realize it. Everybody knows that there's something wrong. Something is broken. I mean, you choose your favorite movie. I mean, just go with The Matrix, right? Something is something's not right with this world, and they are desperately trying to figure it out. And there's this secret online community trying to figure it out, this kind of underground group trying to talk about it, like, what is the Matrix? It's a really cool movie. You should totally watch it. It's a little, it's, it's a little dated, but it's fine. It's fine. You'll be fine. Anyways, there's something wrong about the world. What is it? And there are a lot of political answers to that. There's a lot of social answers to that question. I mean, some people may, I mean, there's some, somebody broke something somewhere where what this world, what did, it doesn't feel like, it doesn't feel like, it doesn't feel like we're living in the best timeline. I mean, that's the way some people talk about it right now. Like somehow maybe we're in the worst timeline, that there's somehow there's a multiverse and somehow we all ended up on the worst timeline. There's just a lot of different ways that you'll see and hear people out there expressing these things. Something is not right. And I think we are, we are past the point where there are any real significant social or religious movements that are out there still trying to convince us, no, that everything's just fine. And if we'll just da-da-da-da-da, then everything can be, be great again. I mean, the world is metaphorically and literally on fire. And how, how did we get here? Well, the Bible offers, I think, a very clear and compelling answer to that. And the word, it's a very common Bible word. You probably hear it. You probably don't I mean, even I have a pretty good idea what it means, but what the Bible says that the problem with this world is sin, and sin we're going to talk about today. Um, actually, the the word sin is very often has been very often used in um, archery. It, it refers to kind of the the distance between the target is like the like I was trying to hit this target, and there's a sin distance, which is the distance between uh, where my arrow hit and the target that I was trying to get. The word in Greek, hamartia, same basic idea, right? It's, it's this idea that um, something that falls short, that misses the mark of what you're trying to attain. And so then, then sin is, for just in a, in a very simplistic way, it is you're, you're aiming for the mark of what life is supposed to be like, what you're supposed to be like, what an ideal perfect you would look like. That's what I'm trying to be. You're not, try, you're, not, you're, not, you're not trying to do bad things, right? At least I wasn't. Maybe I am now, but like of, of, of like who and what I'm supposed to be, like the gap between the perfect me and what this is, that's sin, right? And more precisely, more theologically, um, sin is the difference between what you are and what God would require of you to be perfect. If, if the obligation was to be perfect, what would that look like? And what is the difference between that and your life? That's sin. Anything that is against God, anything that is less than God's ideal, both internally or externally, that's what the Bible calls sin. And so you go back to the Old Testament, you got these incredibly lengthy descriptors of all of these laws and you put it together and you're like, man, that is incredibly burdensome. This is what it would take in order for me to kind of be perfect. And then Jesus kind of comes around and says, hey, listen, you may have misunderstood some of this. You know, the Bible says don't murder. Actually, if you got any murder in your heart, that's the same as murder. 
as far as what we're talking about sins. Like, so if you got hate, you call somebody an idiot, it's the same. You may have heard it said, hey, don't commit adultery. Actually, what that means is you shouldn't even be doing that in your heart. And like Jesus next levels it. Like we think of Jesus as like this kind of softy, but he actually kind of ramps it up a little bit. He gets mad at the Pharisees for kind of all their dependence on the law. But when he describes, when he describes this idea of what it would really mean to be perfect, it gets big. I mean, he says this to the rich young ruler guy. Like the rich, this guy comes up to Jesus like, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Which is a ridiculous question. Like there's like, there's a, some good, like you're, like you're earning it. And Jesus has been trying to communicate this. It's not something you earn. So like follow all the commandments. And this dude's like, which ones? And like, oh, this, I mean, you tell, just, like, it's just kind of implied in there. Kind of the Jesus parenthesis rolls his eyes and thinks, oh man, this guy, close parenthesis, right? And so he's like, well, he just kind of lists some of them out, including like, you know, don't lie. And he's like, man, I've honor your father and mother. I've done this perfectly my whole life. And again, Jesus is like, come on with this guy. I mean, now he's obviously at a minimum a liar because he hasn't done these things perfectly. But then Jesus says, oh, so you're trying to be perfect. You want to be perfect? Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Come follow me. And dude walked away. He's like, I can't do that. But the idea that what Jesus has been trying to communicate to him from the beginning, if perfect is your goal, you're always going to walk away desperate. Perfect shouldn't be your goal. You can't, you can't get there by perfect. But, and so, and, and so that's, that, that's what sin is. And so if you go to the book of Romans, starting in Romans 1, Paul is talking about, he's talking generally about creation, what creation tells us about God. And that if you look, you can understand about who God is and, and how perfect he is. And then you begin to look at yourself and you think like who I am compared to God, there's a, there's a huge gap there. And my conscience tells me I should do things and I don't. And the world, I could like, like the, the laws of this universe, like even if I don't really believe in the, the, the Christian Jewish understanding of who God is, there's enough evidence out there in the world and just in my own heart that there is something wrong with me that I am a sinner. I miss the mark. I, I do things that are against the laws of the universe. I do things that are against God. And so he goes on through that in Romans 1, Romans 2, and the first part of Romans 3, and that's kind of where we'll jump in. Romans 3, verse 10, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And you're like, whoa, 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 overstated Paul, right? But what he's talking about, when he talks about good, when he talks about righteous, he's talking about an illegal sense of the word. Are you righteous? Are you on the right side of the law? I'm not talking about, have you done more good things than you have done bad things? You know, I always ask, when I, when I kind of get into this conversation, I always ask people this question. Do you believe that there are good people in prison? you know, kind of let it sit there for a little bit. It seems rhetorical. It seems like a trip question. Don't ever answer a question a pastor asks you. It's got to be a trap. And the answer is yes. Obviously, by, by our definition of good people, people who have done more good than bad are kind of good in their heart. They're in prison. There are people like that that are in prison. What do all prisoners have in common? Again, taking into account that some people have been falsely accused, taking that out of it, right? What do all prisoners have in common? They broke the law. They are all lawbreakers. Whether or not you are in prison, whether or not you get convicted in a court is not a dis an assessment of your character of whether or not you are, quote, a good person or a bad person. It's a question, are you a lawbreaker or not? If you are a lawbreaker, um, then you're guilty. There is no one righteous. There is no one in a right standing before the court. There's no one that can go to court and say, you have not broken the law. 
There is no one who does good, parentheses always, if it helps you, right? Not even one. It says their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, swift to shed blood, ruin and misery. I mean, you're like, oh my word. And maybe 20 years ago, maybe even 10 years ago, you'd have read this and be like, man, these Christians, man, that's some wackadoo stuff. That's just too intense. That's too morbid. People are better than that. But I feel like that this reads, this would read well on any political blog that you could look at right now as the way we kind of describe one another. And and and, the, and honestly, just, just walk out the door. It just seems like, just listen to the news. It seems like there is. Like, if you think about us collectively, this is who we are. We have done this. I think, I think the soft peddling of sin, which I think existed kind of, let's just say, in the 90s, early 2000s, it just kind of existed. That sin's not as bad as the Christian worldview has said. And I, I think we've, I think we're slowly coming around to the idea that left to our own, People are sinners, and it's not just, oh, man, dad, gum it, I messed up today, but tomorrow I'm going to do better. Especially if you take, you just kind of take a few steps back, and you see the level and the accumulation of the destruction and the hurt that we're doing. And sin is a big deal. Sin is a big deal, and it has overwhelming consequences in our relationships, in our communities, in our world as a whole. We are destroying ourselves internally. We're destroying ourselves relationally. We're doing real damage to the quality of life in our world. This is what sin is. And there was a time when I would share the gospel with people that I, I, I felt like I, I had, maybe, I don't know, soft sell is the right word. Like I, I feel like I had to tiptoe around this a little bit because people, this was, this was everybody's off ramp. But if I were to just say, okay, stop, take all the theological language out of it. And I were to say to you that kind of part two of the gospel is this, this world is broken and we collectively broke it and each one of us has played a part in it. I don't know that anybody is objecting to that. I mean, the point at which maybe someone would object theologically is that somehow God has some stake in this, that God, that somehow it matters to God, like in a personal way. I mean, maybe it matters to God in a hey, I, I care about you kind of way. It may matter to God in a I care about my creation kind of way. But I think we can all agree that sin is real. Falling short is real. Missing the mark is real. The destruction that has come from that, it's real. So you continue on, verse 21, uh, Romans 3. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. Basically saying here is you're not going to get right with God based on what you are, based on what you do. Whether you have the law as a Jew or you don't have the law as a Gentile, no matter what, you're not, you're not going to be in right standing with God based on what you do. That is not where it can be found. It says it can be found in Jesus, but that's part three. So we skip over that part and we go to verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so the mark is God's glory. That's what we're trying to hit. I am trying to honor and glorify God in every aspect of my life. Now the definition and the gap between my life and what the mark looks like even gets bigger. It's not just that sometimes I do bad things, which we do, and Paul's described that, all these bad things that individually and collectively we've done. 
But if the goal, if the mark is, is that in everything that I do, I am bringing glory and honor to God. Well, now some of the things that I consider neutral or just kind of consider no big deal or not really just anything short of kind of this perfect ideal that I would imagine would seem very elusive. Anything short of that is sin. And I think we can all recognize then that we we missed the mark there. And you continue on. And I encourage you at some point to kind of do a deep dive study into Romans. I mean, it's an incredible theological work by Paul to kind of do exactly what we're doing right now, which is to do just a deep dive into what the gospel is and kind of sin and its consequences and those things. And so you move on to Romans chapter 6, and um, we'll just start in verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity, and to ever-increasing wickedness. So now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at the time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. And so back and forth here, he's just kind of making this contrast and if that's the first time you've seen that passage, you might be like, what? And if you're like, you're not looking at the Bible as you're kind of going through this, I can only imagine like you're kind of on a, on a run right now and uh, you're kind of driving in your car and you're reading those verses like that's a whole lot of deep and I don't know what, but let's just, let's just, let's just simplify it here because we're really kind of getting to the power verse here at the very end of the chapter that basically Paul's argument here is that essentially once sin gets in you, you're kind of a slave to it. You just can't seem to escape it. It seems like no matter how hard you try, you just keep falling short. And again, you you even can you might could have an objective to that feel an objection to that theologically, but do you have an object an objection to that like rationally? If I were to say to you, hey, does it feel like sometimes the more you try to do good, the worse things get? And no matter how hard you try, there's continues to be a problem? No. Or what if I were to say that it seems like that the the cumulative result of our sin is death? There's a lot of de- there's a lot of death. There's just a lot of death. And especially if we're going to just broaden the definition of death to kind of an internal, emotional, spiritual death, a separation and an isolation from God, I think that we can all agree that it seems like that sin just kind of has us by the throat and it just brings a lot of separation and death, both both literally, physically, and then spiritually, emotionally, and relationally. This is what it does. It brings death. And so then Paul sums it up this way. In verse 23 of Romans chapter 6, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna come back to that, um, the second half of that for sure, when we kind of talk about kind of what Jesus does to kind of make this problem better. But right now, we're, just, we're still we're just kind of talking about the problem. First part of verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. A wage, something you earn, like a paycheck. I work a few hours here. And if I, I, if I work so many hours every week, every two weeks, at the end of the month, I, I get paid. It is the thing that I earn for myself by what I do, right? So the wages, something you've earned, 
From what? From my work? No, from your sin. What you have earned for yourself, the payment, the consequence, your paycheck at the end of the month. What did I do today? What did I do this month? I sinned. What do you get for that? The wages of sin is death. The result, what you've earned. And so in Romans 3, all of us have fallen short. All of us have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And the wage, what we've earned for that is death. A spiritual separation from God, ultimately the physical destruction of our bodies, this, this is the result. And what, what has happened, I mean, what, what we see out there in the world, and we, we just kind of see all the examples of it. We see a lot of consequences from it, but really internally in our own heart, in our own life, the biggest consequence is the death that happens in us. It is a spiritual separation from God. It is an isolation from God. And it, and it leads ultimately to the destruction of my body. And then the separation from God continues on from this life to the next. I have separated myself from God because of my sin. We collectively as God's people have separated ourselves. Collectively as the people that God has created as a world, we have separated ourselves from God and have brought about on us individually and collectively this wage, this penalty, this payment, this consequence, that's death. And so we ask ourselves, kind of we started with this idea, we ask ourselves, we, we all understand to some degree that there is something wrong and broken with the world. And we all have lots of answers to that. And we have lots of particular scapegoats. And the thing that I think that is the most uncomfortable about the Bible's answer to this is there isn't a scapegoat to be found. It is us individually and all of us collectively that have done this. We, we, we did this starting from the very beginning, starting with Adam and Eve, then you move to Cain and Abel and the story of Noah just from the very beginning. There was just, we, we rebelled against God. We, we, felt, we fell short of his standard. We chose not God. We chose to disobey. We chose to dishonor him. And the more that we do that, the more death and pain and destruction there is individually in our hearts, in our lives, and collectively in our world. That is what the Bible says the problem is. And so, that's why things aren't right. I mean, you would think that if all was true was point number one, God loves you like a dad, um, everything, everything would be great, but it's not great because, again, if we're going to go back to that story, and if you didn't listen to part one, I'm not sure why you're listening, continue listening. Go back, finish, I want to come back, right? That dude, he tells, he tells his dad, I wish you were dead. I want to go to the other side of the world, and I want to live without you. And, and suddenly he spends everything and goes horribly wrong, and he's about to starve to death, and he wishes he could eat eat the gross slop that he's feeding to the pigs, but he's starving to death. And he is in a gross, disgusting, destructive situation. Um, movement two of the movie, part two of the trilogy, it's never the fun one. It's never the fun part. But that's kind of where this is. And it's kind of just, again, just like in that story of the prodigal son, um, that, that, that moment where he is on the other side of the world, living apart from his dad's values, wishing his dad was dead, it just only leads to his own death and destruction. And that is collectively and individually what we have done to ourselves and to our world. And so I think it's important if we're to fully understand the gospel, we have to understand actually God's love is bigger and greater than we realize. And then we have to kind of come to grips with the same thing, that sin is actually more serious and a bigger deal than we want to make it. And if we can really put our minds around those two ideas, then the power of part three and what Jesus Christ did for us, it just gets bigger and better. And so 
I encourage you to hang around and join us for part three as we continue to kind of explore this kind of deep dive of kind of what, what, what the gospel really is. And if you are local to Northwest Arkansas, man, we would love to meet you. We'd love to see you at church on Sunday. You can find us at thegrovechurch.org slash connect, and you can learn more about the what's, when, and where's of how we meet, and we can help you, love you, serve you any way that you would like. We would love that. And if you're not local, man, you can still check us out, growthchurch.org slash connect. We're streaming our services. We'd love to meet you, just be encouraged by you, help you in any way that we can. So just let us know that you're listening. And we'd love to connect with you in some way. And again, I encourage you to come back as we wrap up this series. And again, this is Charlie Lofton, lead pastor at The Grove. And thanks for joining us. 